Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. We're closing out the year and preparing for a new administration. Getting a handle on where the media stands is more important than ever. Today, I'm joined by radio host Eric Erickson. This is episode eight. From his time at Fox and at CNN, to faith and family, to the media's geographic bias, we start with the evolution of the Never Trump wing in the media. All right, Eric, so I wanted to start with the last time that you and I uh, officially worked together. Uh, I was uh, You had started The Resurgent in early 2016, and uh, I, I joined on and, and kind of helped as, as that thing got off the ground a little bit on a consulting capacity. Uh, and what I remember about that was it was right in the heat of you really being one of the most prominent you know, kind of quote, never Trump voices. Uh, and I would include others like um, Glenn Beck and Ben Shapiro in this category that all, all of whom, you know, once once Donald Trump was elected, went into what I would call maybe like the sometimes or the maybe Trump category. Um, and it seemed to me that there was like principle that led you to never Trump. And then post-Trump election, it was more of a, a practical thing. Um, and, and I wanted to, guys, I guess, ask you about the, that time, you know, the time being at the forefront of that, Trump getting elected, the pivot there, but really kind of the place that the Never Trump movement or, you know, it wasn't really all together connected, but where the in the media, where that ended up going over the last four years. Yeah. And, you know, a, a lot of people, I, I've written about it extensively. I've talked about it. And it's just people never seem to pick it up as one of those things where you just have to repeat it over and over. It, it very much was a principal decision for me in 2016. Um, and I still stand by the fact character counts. And I think the president doesn't have good character. I think that the president, um, the, the Republicans could have picked someone better who would have beaten Hillary Clinton. It's amazing the mythology that has has cropped up that, oh, Donald Trump, who got a smaller percentage of the primary vote and became the Republican nominee than any other person in history, uh, was somehow the, the, the best person to run against Hillary Clinton. I'm not sure that's true. I think it's mythology. Yeah. Uh, I still think character counted, and I still think a lot of the stuff that I said would happen in 2016 wound up happening. Um, but then comes 2020. And one of my biggest criticisms of Donald Trump in 2016 is the man had been a Democrat who gave money to a lot of pro-abortion causes to Nancy Pelosi and to others. And I really did assume that when he got in office, he would go back to those ways, that uh, he would not deliver on a lot of the promises he had made. And in fact, he actually did do a lot of policies that I like. And I still think that he's got terrible character. I still think that uh, had I to do it over, I would have done the exact same thing and made the exact same arguments. I still think that a lot of Christian conservatives have been led astray by him and have gone off into idol worship instead of actual uh, Christian worship. Uh, I still think he brings out terrible things in other people. But I went third party in 2016, and uh, that guy went nuts. And I wasn't going to sit it out. <laughs> Was in it Evan McMullen? Uh, yeah, 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 Evan McMullen. Uh, I wasn't going to sit out 2020. So uh, do I vote third party again? Do I vote for him or do I vote for Biden? And ultimately, I concluded as much as there are personal and philosophical things about him I don't like, and as much as there are personal and philosophical things I don't like about a lot of those who surround him as supporters, uh, policy-wise, I was going to get far worse things from Joe Biden than I would from Trump. So I would go with him. Right. 
Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I, and I think, you know, I, again, I, I, not to impugn the, the motives of anyone else, um, but I would put you at, at the very much the forefront of that principled position pre-November 2016, sort of practical post that. Um, but then we look at like the rest of the media landscape of the, the rise of the continued Never Trump wing, the Lincoln Project, Jen Rubin, Max Boot. And I think I actually would separate Lincoln Project and that group from even the others because it seems that the principle that led you and maybe others in the media space away from Trump before 2016 ended up being the, the things that they kind of didn't like about Donald Trump, they adapted and adopted in in the way that they then attacked him in, in among the Rick Wilsons of the world in, in the Trump era. Yeah, you know, I've always said that Donald Trump's unique superpower is to make other people behave exactly as they say he behaves. Uh, and you see that with some of them. Uh, I thought I think it's very striking that almost to a person, those people uh, who had been within the Republican Party, not necessarily the conservative movement, but within the Republican Party, who have maintained their dogged opposition to the president, are also the people who, if you ask them to list their top ten issues, would never list the pro-life cause in their their top ten issues. You are dealing with people who uh, social conservatism plays no role in their worldview. And it does to me uh, and to a lot of people who didn't support the president in 2016 who moved his way, uh, social conservatism is there. With those who have maintained their stride in opposition and have essentially become Democrats at this point, uh, they are they never were social conservatives and would have never considered themselves socially conservative. Yeah, and I, I think this actually kind of dovetails with something I want to talk about later, which is this sort of geographic bias that comes from the media. You obviously, based in Georgia, um, you know, very much, you know, in among the, the, you know, the Georgia political scene there, but also, you know, the media, it's not, you know, in the uh, New York and D.C. area. Uh, so, but, but I guess I'm also curious, though, because I think, the just for putting Lincoln Project aside, even just the the former Republicans like a Nicole Wallace type from on MSNBC, it seems the media has embraced this idea of uh, like there there has been a, a a push. It seems like from the New York Times, CNN, MSNBC during the Trump era that there aren't a lot of Trump. Def, not even defending voices, but those who are are not completely turned the other way than when it comes to representing, quote unquote, Republicans uh, within the media space. And I, I guess I wonder if it's a conscious choice by those who have become the voice of, you know, the never Trump Republicans during the last four years, or if it's just the the ones who are, you know, happen to bubble to the surface of of cable news and other green rooms. Well, you know, I, I find it interesting, actually. I was routinely getting uh, TV hits. In fact, I was on Meet the Press about once a month. Up until after January of 2019, I said I would vote for the president in 2020 and haven't really been on TV since, <laughs> on CNN, Fox, MSNBC. Well, actually, I've done more Fox now uh, than CNN, MSNBC, NBC, any of those. Uh, Bill Maher would still have me out. Uh, for HBO, but it, it was very striking to me how uh, once I left my Fox contract at the beginning of, of 2018, I literally did more television hits in, from 2018 to 2019 combined uh, than in the previous three years of Fox. And then I said I'd vote for the president in, in 2020 and just poof, gone. <laughs> um, and, and yes, I, I have noted repeatedly, even on my radio show, that whether you look at CNN or MSNBC, you are hard-pressed, with the possible exception of Rick Santorum on CNN, you're very hard-pressed to find someone who is actually supportive 
of the president or will defend the president. Now, it's also kind of frustrating to me because while I'll defend the president, I will also call him out on stuff. Right. And there is no market on Fox, CNN, MSNBC or anywhere else for a Republican who's willing to say, I'm voting for him, but there are things about him I don't like. You've either got to be all in or all against. And it's frustrating that there is such a large segment of the public clearly in the vote, um, even though he lost, who support the policies, don't particularly care for a lot of the stuff he does. And those people are nowhere to be represented on any TV network. Yeah. I, I mean, I would say that this, you know, the, the way that that has happened, the way that that's shaken out, particularly like in your case after January 2019, really just is a is another point for why the legacy media is is losing influence and power, because when you don't have a representation of you know, again, not necessarily hardcore Trump fans. I mean, most of the Trump supporters or Trump voters in my life uh, are not people who think he's 100% right on everything or they love the tweets or they love, you know, I mean, there's people are complicated and nuanced and we're getting that more and more in independent spaces and away from, I think, the mainstream legacy media. Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, This old school must always be Republican versus Democrat, conservative versus progressive, when ultimately, uh, particularly if you're conservative, who Jonah Goldberg is actually one of the first people who ever talked to me about this. Um, When I was on CNN at the time, he was then moved, had moved to Fox and said that the hardest part about being on CNN is that if you were conservative, you would typically be a conservative against a Republican, a Democrat, and an anchor, all three of whom disagreed with you on stuff because you were taking a principled position instead of a uh, a philosophical position instead of a political partisan position. And even then, oftentimes, it it would be three Democrats against me, plus the host who was also (laughs) leaning to the left. Later, we'll dig into what Erickson would do if someone handed him $10 million to start a media venture. But now, the future of conservative media. Let me ask you about your time at Fox, because we, we, I think we've entered this, this interesting moment right now uh, where it's now, it is now officially official. Joe Biden will become you know, president uh, in, on January 20th. We're entering now the Biden era, and we've seen Fox sort of straddle that line between the election challenges as this has gone on over the last six weeks to a month or, you know, to two months. And then other outlets like Newsmax really embrace this idea of the illegitimacy of the election. Uh, where do you think this goes in the conservative media space during the Biden era? I mean, will he be a, you know, viewed as this illegitimate president? I mean, does that have to do with maybe how public and out there Donald Trump is? Where do you think, where do you think this goes? You know, I, ironically, I actually think much of the media, including CNN and MSNBC, are going to have to depend on a uh, Trump shadow presidency to maintain ratings. Uh, <laughs> the they're business. going yeah. to have to uh, set Donald Trump up to be the guy who is the voice of response to Joe Biden for them to continue to maintain ratings. On the conservative side of it, uh, I don't think Fox has a lot to worry about long term because I think a lot of the angst of it fades. And also people forget about cable access and and cable channel access. And take OAN, for example, uh, they're largely a streaming service. They're not really on a ton of cable cable TV providers. Same with Newsmax. They're not on a ton of cable and satellite TV providers. Fox is going to be dominant largely because it will always maintain the most eyeballs. What do you think Trump does? Uh, You know, there's been a lot of conversation about will he run in 2024? I've made the case that I think he will run 
for running in 2024, but not actually run, you know, make, make it kind of this guessing game and reality show. Um, and then obviously there's a lot about Trump TV and does he, you know, start a digital property? I mean, do you think he's the, the next phase is a media career? Uh, yeah, I, it, look, there was some rumor that with Rush Limbaugh ultimately probably retiring here, uh, given his health at some point, um, that Donald, maybe Donald Trump would do that. I don't see a man of his age and what his interests are being able to do three hours of talk radio a day. I see him very much being able to program a TV network and to possibly have a show of his own uh, where he gets to state his views. And I doubt you see a brand new network spring up, but probably doing some sort of uh, collaboration with Newsmax or with OAN or frankly, uh, CNN's got the headline news outlet they got to do something with and Zucker uh, it, it programmed <laughs> CNN's rise around Trump. Maybe they could give him that. Yeah. You know, one of the most interesting things that I think kind of went under the radar in the Tucker, uh, Michael Cohen tapes that he started releasing uh, was that, that Jeff, you know, really seemed pretty serious about assuming that Donald Trump was going to lose in 2016 and giving him a weekly show. Like, you know, that was kind of pitched over there. And I, I you know, I don't know. I, I, it certainly would get good ratings. I don't know if uh, if the blowback uh, from Twitter would be enough for uh, for Jeff to do it. Or I don't right. know if, if, if Jeff even is still there. But yeah, um, it, it's going to be I'm, it, Trump is going to do something in the media to keep his exposure up. He likes it. He feeds off the crowd. Um, and, and whether it's live events or something, he's going to find a way to continue to be around. I can't imagine it being more than an hour of TV a day. Um, frankly, I think if Fox was smart, Fox would uh, be rapidly out there trying to pitch him on something. Yeah, because you didn't mention Fox News as a potential destination there. And obviously, you know, they're the big player at the same time. He's really made it a bit of a, uh, I don't know. I don't I don't think it's real. I think it's more of a game to, to uh, yeah. you know, put them against, against him and, you know, pit them against each other. Um, but, I, it, with with without Donald Trump in the spotlight, does a media outlet like Fox, which has, I think Tucker Carlson may be at the top of the Trump adjacent worldview, you know, populist kind of ideas, um, and then you have the more of like the Judge Jeanine, Maria Bartiromo, Lou Dobbs types. I I wonder where that all kind of shakes out, particularly as we look at 2024, which which may end up normalizing into a bit of a, you know, the Marco Rubios and the Nikki Haley's and those kinds of of candidates that rise up, and and the Fox News will may become a little bit more on the kind of quote establishment end of f tracking the party. Well, you know, by and large, I think Fox always has been more establishment than people give it credit for. I mean, for example. Um, I was uh, largely, the though being paid by Fox, I was being paid not to be on TV, uh, in large part because of my criticisms of the Republican establishment. Uh, it, Roger Ailes actually explicitly told me as much uh, that uh, once I moved over from CNN to Fox, uh, I became a problem for some of the Republican establishment, and I was giving Roger heartburn. Uh, because they would call and, and blow up at him about stuff I was saying. So largely I was marginalized at Fox because of the Republican establishment that's kind of always existed. Uh, and then you have the opinion hosts in the evening uh, who are the guys that the conservatives rally around. They're still going to be there spread out between Fox News and Fox Business. Uh, some of them, I wouldn't be surprised if when their contracts are up, you see Newsmax and OAN making a bid for them. Right. Yeah. Wait, so so bring me back to that. So Ro the timing on that conversation you were having with Roger Ailes, that was like, this was 
obviously, you know, pre-Trump era, but this was like 2014-ish that this was happening? Yeah, this was 2014, 2015. Um, uh, it originally conveyed to me by by someone on behalf of Roger uh, that uh, people were complaining about my criticisms of Mitch McConnell, both in my writings at Red State at the time uh, and then the things I was saying on television. And I specifically remember, uh, look, we're not telling you to stop saying these things or writing these things. Uh, what we are saying is that if you do continue to do these things, uh, your ability to appear across the network might actually be in jeopardy, uh, not that we would stop paying you. That's fascinating. I I, I, uh, I want to talk about CNN also, but when I left CNN, I went now, to- I, a, I would also point out that at the time, Mitch McConnell's wife was on the board of Fox News. Okay, got it. And that is now in the Trump administration. Yes. <laughs> uh, the outgoing Trump administration. The uh, it, Because when I got to, I left uh, CNN and went to The Blaze in September 2013, one of the first things, and I'm not, a, a, like a very political person, uh, you, you know, uh, but I got there and, and Glenn Beck is running this campaign to quote, defund the GOP. And I'm like, wait a second, what, is, what exactly is happening? Here? And, and, you know, it, it's interesting to look back at it. There was these primary challenges of Mitch McConnell. Uh, I think by Matt Bevin, who ended up becoming yes. governor yeah, there. I Bevin. Yeah. That's what led to me being yanked. What was Erickson's time at CNN like? And how does he think the network has evolved since then? That's next. But first, the Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas, featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that form the greatest country on the planet. The First is free. No subscriptions, no credit cards, no trials, no censorship. You can watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to The First tv.com to learn more more with eric erickson in a minute but first the latest how did this get published this one comes to us from the daily beast and their misleading attack on south dakota governor christy Nome. The media cycled through a variety of red state governors that have drawn their ire over the course of the coronavirus pandemic, from Florida's Ron DeSantis to Texas' Greg Abbott. Interestingly, they never seemed to be aimed at the governors of states with the highest per capita death totals, like New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. But the latest governor to become the focus of the media hit pieces is Christy Nome of South Dakota. The Daily Beast wrote a story recently. What's your takeaway when you hear this headline? Anti-mask Gov's grandmother died in nursing home ravaged by COVID. Now, you may think it seems pretty gross to attack someone over the death of their grandmother, no matter who they are, but you also likely think Governor Nome's grandmother died of COVID, right? Well, let's start with the fact that Christy Nome is not anti-mask, as the headline reads, but getting to the real crux of the story. Christy Nome's 98-year-old grandmother did not die of COVID at all. As the story later states, Nome's grandmother tested negative for COVID and the other 12 of the 13 deaths between November 14th and November 28th at the Esteline Nursing Home are described by the administrator, Mike Ward, as COVID-related. So the whole angle of the piece is completely false. But then the story from Michael Daly veers into a weird territory. Nome's father, Aldous Arnold's son, was killed in a 1994 accident involving farm machinery, writes. Ryan Arnold, Aldous's grandson, and Nome's cousin died in 2010 of surgical complications after donating part of his liver to his brother. Uh, okay. And here's where he's really going. Nome here made clear she is intimately acquainted with personal loss, he writes. But as of Monday night, Nome has not tweeted a word about the 12 who had died along with Arnold during that fearful fortnight. 
As Red State noted when it wrote up this terrible piece, the nursing home in question actually was taking serious precautions. The home took extensive precautions against COVID-19 long before anybody there tested positive. One of the people quoted in the piece said that visitors were required to wear masks and met with a resident in a separate room partitioned by plexiglass and plastic sheeting. That was 16 paragraphs down. All of this is based around Nome refusing to mandate masks in her state, instead urging personal responsibility, and for each facility, like the nursing home her grandmother was in, where she didn't get COVID, making the choices for themselves. The Daily Beast, how did this get published? Now, back to Eric Erickson. Let me jump to CNN, uh, because you were there 2010 to 20... You were there... Yeah, the end of 2009 until uh, the week after the inauguration in 2013. Okay. Got it. And so we, we crossed paths there. I do remember some of the election nights in 2012 down in Atlanta when I would uh, come down for each of the primaries uh, and you were on the panels there. And, and I, I know you've written about and you've talked about your time at CNN, um, but I, I guess let's start with that. Uh, you were it seemed like you were one of the, the biggest profile conservative voices on CNN during those that basically the the entire four years, uh, uh, the first four years of of Barack Obama's presidency. What was that like? What what do you remember about your interactions with others at the network on the, you know, on-air side, off-air? What was that like? You know, I still actually have probably stronger friendships and and more long-term relationships with a lot of people at CNN than at Fox. Uh, It was an entirely pleasant experience. It could be frustrating because rarely were you ever commenting on something that came from the right. Uh, you were oftentimes on defense uh, for things that generated on the left. Uh, although I, I do have an appreciation, for example, for Josh Marshall at Talking Points Memo, uh, for his ability to generate real journalism and stories, even though they're always against the people on the right, they're actually legitimate news stories. And you don't have as much of that on on the right these days. Uh, but uh, at the same time, you know, when I was hired, it was John Klein, who was the president of CNN, He brought me up to New York and basically said, we're a network that's headquartered in Atlanta and we have no one on our, on our air who talks or thinks like people who live in Atlanta, Mm -hmm. Uh, no, nothing in common. And so I kind of became the non-beltway conservative who talks like people who are actually conservative and not Washington walks. And it was great. I had a lot of fun. Uh, I have heard repeatedly now from multiple people that Uh, There were a lot of people at CNN who were very upset that they hired someone like me at the time, a a bomb throwing blogger from the South, and that most, if not all of the people who were very privately upset, ultimately came around to defending me regularly uh, when people at the network would be upset with me for stuff uh, and made a lot of friends, frankly, across the aisle and among the anchors, some of whom are still very good friends. And it was nice to be able to be the guy who could come on and say, I realize you're saying X, Y, and Z, but let's look at it from my perspective. And they were very respectful for that. There were very few hostile people. The most interesting piece of advice I got from CNN was from one of the evening anchors who told me the one thing to never do as a conservative at CNN was go on the daytime shows. Uh, And those were always the shows in Atlanta. Hmm. And according to him, uh, he said that those are the shows where the anchors believe they need to be partisan liberals so that they can get promoted to New York City and get out of Atlanta. So avoid them. <laughs> and uh, that was the advice that I took. And, and frankly, it held up over time. Uh, the early morning shows and the evening shows were the ones you wanted to be on. And the daytime shows, the, the anchors went out of their way, uh, frankly, to not be quite as as nice or open-minded about my position as, say, a Wolf Blitzer or an Anderson Cooper or a John King or someone like that. Yeah, 
<laughs> that's I, I'm thinking of like the idea that there's this daytime where everyone is like really thirsty for you know social media attention and that's just now expanded to the entire yeah. network um is like this grown out of that uh over the over the years um but i mean look i john klein i think was uh really a genius and i think that it was it was so smart of him to to think in that in those terms because you weren't just representing you know you weren't just yourself i mean you really were the voice of of a group of people that uh were not getting a voice uh, on cable news and i would argue uh, still are not really well right. represented on there. What, do you? So you left in 2013, um, and and I guess you know, looking at it uh, from the outside now, uh, you know, as we went into 2015, 2016, and now where we are, what do you think happened? Uh, because it's very different. It's very different than when you and I were there. Yeah, and it, you know, so Jeff Zucker comes in. He was coming in as I was leaving. And I'll tell you, um, I would have stayed at CNN, but for one issue. And, and in hindsight, maybe I should have stayed anyway. I, I definitely would have been on more than I was at Fox. Fox was willing to pay money to get me away from CNN, which they had to do uh, because of the terms of my contract. But I, it really wasn't a financial decision that let me leave Fox. I was starting to grow in radio. Uh, my local radio program in, in Atlanta is, is one of the, if not regularly, the most listened to local radio program in the country. And if I said the sky was blue, I was guaranteed to get a media matters attack. <laughs> and I was often in trouble internally at the network for stuff I would say on radio right. that in proper context really wasn't anything. There were some things I would say, and I would acknowledge, yeah, I probably shouldn't have said that. Uh, but there were way too often I would say something taken out of context that would get the standards people at CNN mad at me for no good reason. And I just wanted a provision in my contract that said, you're not going to punish me because of something I said on radio. And they absolutely flat out would not do it. And that's why I left CNN. Uh, and they kept telling me, you know, Jeff Sucker's not going to care. He's not going to care. And my position was, and I didn't have an agent. It was just me. And my position was, if Jeff Zucker's not going to care, then you should be willing to put it in the contract. And they wouldn't. So I left. And Fox, of course, was put, put that in my contract that they didn't care what I said on radio. Um, as long as I didn't reflect it on television, they were fine with it. Um, and I do think when Jeff Zucker came in, he's, I mean, he's the golden child, the wonderkin, the, the head of the Today Show. He's got to boost CNN's ratings. And he tries by making CNN obsess about stories like the Malaysian Airlines flight and the ratings go up. And so there's more obsession there. Well, that kind of burns out. People get onto it. They're not going to listen to Don Lemon talk about a black hole sucking up a Malaysian Airlines jet. But then Trump comes around and CNN literally will cover the landing of the Trump airplane 757 as if it's Air Force One landing. Yeah. And CNN kind of explodes at first with a lot of Trump fans and then flips the switch and becomes very anti-Trump. The, the the primary, I mean, you look back at some of that coverage, even like interviews with Anderson Cooper uh, or Don Lemon, they they were very friendly. And it was, I, I, I still don't really know whether it was because this is great for ratings or whether it was this sort of cynical, he is going to clearly lose to Hillary Clinton. So why not just keep boosting him? And, uh, and then right. it'll be an easy and, loss. I mean, if you look at some of the commentators they had on the time, Jeffrey Lord and others, they were very pro-Donald Trump, even in the Republican primary. And as soon as the president won the nomination, uh, a lot of those people were disappeared from CNN. Right, right, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, uh, I I've spent a lot of time 
listening to the James O'Keefe tapes. I, I used to be on that 9 a.m. editorial call for about two years, um, but and for about a year of that, Jeff, uh, Jeff Zucker ran it. Um, and I knew Jeff well. I, I like Jeff. I think he's, he's really smart. Um, and I, I really tried to listen to find if there's anything interesting or surprising in them. And I, I have not been able to find any. I don't know if you've listened to it any of No, all. It, look, I have. And there, there's nothing. These are the sorts of it. Now, I didn't participate in the editorial meetings, mind you, but I knew enough about them. There's, there's no major revelations there. And, and it's one of those things conservatives grab hold of and say, aha, they really are the leftists we knew they were. But I mean, really, it's, it's putting together an exciting TV package. The same sorts of things happen at Fox. Right. And there, and there isn't, I mean, there, there's a consistency to it. There's no real like, you know, discussion about, oh, actually, maybe this thing is not the, the, this giant story that we should, uh, you know, cover incessantly. I mean, you wrote a column in 2018 that I thought was really great. You wrote, bias, of course, is often something you do not realize you have. Uh, you were talking about Chuck Todd at the time, but it, it is something, there, there is a, a, a clear lack of introspection in the media landscape. I think, I think it's probably always been there, um, but it's something that you have. Uh, you, you are, I feel, are always very introspective about your own, you know, always sort of questioning your own beliefs and the, what you're doing. And it's, and we don't see that on a large scale, whether at CNN or in other places, particularly in these last four years. Yeah, it, it's one of my frustrations, frankly, with the network. So just look at, in fact, I talked about this on my radio program today. Look at the coverage of the vaccine in May and in June. And all the way to October, or not Fox, but CNN and MSNBC both had on so-called experts with MDs next to their name who said it was impossible to get a vaccine this year. And that if you did get a vaccine this year, it wouldn't be safe to take. Well, lo and behold, here comes a vaccine this year that is safe to take, uh, that even people are going on television cameras so that you could see them take it. And there's never been a, a CNN or an MSNBC, let's bring back this expert and ask them what they got wrong. You know, if I said something on CNN and I got it wrong, they would inevitably bring me back and, and make me essentially have to apologize for, oops, yeah, I screwed up, I got it wrong. <laughs> yeah. you, you don't see that uh, with the media as a whole these days, particularly with CNN and MSNBC. No, it's a uh, it's 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 a bias, but I also think there's a bias also um, in in geography, uh, and and I, I wanted to kind of ask you about both a geographic bias. You being in Georgia, um, I'm in Texas now. I think I see things a little differently than I did when I was uh, you know living in New York City. Um, but there's also this bias that I feel like is is towards uh, appealing to a certain audience that is is really anchors their lives in politics. And and you wrote a great column in 2017 in the New York Times and just read a, a section of it. You said, not everything should be political and we can only make everything political when we decide the other side is evil just because they disagree with us. We see the world only in this polarized way if we never take the time to know anyone on the other side, if we never find ways to build friendship despite our differences. Uh, and, and it does seem like there is the bias that we have towards everything is political and politics is the most important thing in the world. I would say, you know, more than faith and family and community uh, is something that is very clearly a, a New York and D.C. media centric idea uh, that really misses a lot of the population. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, I, look, I agree with you. And I think that that's probably actually contributes more to a ratings downfall after Trump than anything else is uh, they're going to remain so high pol highly polarized and politicized and they don't go out into the heartland and find stories that resonate with people there. Uh, you're not going to have a, a guy like you or a guy like me pontificating on CNN one way or the other. 
Uh, it's going to be someone from Washington and New York who sees the world from a Washington, New York lens who really forgets about the rest of the country. And right now, you, you know, when I first went to CNN, Sean Hannity found out about it. We were friends. He said, I need to go meet with Bill Shine at Fox. And so I went to Fox. Uh, was actually up there to meet with Jeff Klein or John Klein and, yeah. and went to see Bill Shine first. And he said, listen, here's why you should come to Fox. He said, and he drew ovals around the coast and a little bitty oval and circle in, in uh, North Carolina. And he said, CNN and MSNBC compete over the coasts. MSNBC is ahead of CNN. And he pointed to the little circle in North Carolina and said, because they get the college towns like Raleigh Durham. <laughs> and then they leave the rest of the country for Fox. They pay attention to what people within 25 miles of a coast care about. We pay attention to what people within a hundred miles of a river Valley pay, uh, care about. And that's why Fox is number one. And I think that has frankly held up over time. Uh, you're far more likely to hear Oscars and Grammy coverage on CNN than you are on Fox. Uh, and Fox does actually, for a network that is solely New York-based, spends a ton of research time trying to figure out what people in Dubuque and, and Amarillo, Texas care about. Yeah, it's, it is such a, uh, a missing, you know, and again, I, I go back to like, you know, independence and, and the, the rise of like digital because there, there's such a missing piece. And, I, you know, even on some level, Fox, um, you know, being largely based in, in New York and, and yeah, they want to appeal uh, to that audience, but at the same time, they're not necessarily of that audience in, in a lot of ways. And, and um, I, I uh, let me just bring that to, to, your book uh, in 2017, Before You Wake, Life Lessons from a Father to His Children, uh, which I think was fantastic and everyone should read that uh, because the, you, the way you approach your, I don't know, I don't want to, punditry sounds, sounds bad, but the way you sort of think about uh, the country and politics, I think, you know, anchoring it in family and in, in your faith um, brings a very different perspective to it. Uh, I wonder, how, how do you think that served you to, to be unique in the space that way? Gosh, you know, it, let me just say, I used to not be that way. Uh, and then as I, I write in that book, I, I had a near-death experience in 2016 as I was being never Trump and had people show up at our house. Three guys showed up at the house to threaten us. And um, I got put in the hospital for about a week and a half, two weeks in ICU with blood clots in my lungs, a lot of them. I mean, to the point where even today it's 2020, that was 2016. And if doctors pull up my scans, they ask me why I'm, I'm alive. It was wow. that bad. And I, I realized that I really was spending a lot of time focusing on stuff that wasn't as important. And a lot of that was turning everything political. And also that I was moving my faith towards my politics instead of politics towards faith. Uh, and you, you, I realized that there aren't a lot of voices out there. And, and I may really be it at the level uh, of, of being a pundit that I am or a commentator that I am uh, who really do weave their um, spiritual, intellectual uh, Christian worldview into the way they see the rest of the world, including politics. Uh, and I, I, I don't say this bragging or patting myself on the back or anything like that. I, I just think it's a statement of fact that I do think to a degree I'm unique in the field of both talk radio and uh, conservative commentary on TV as someone who regularly makes a point of doing that. And I, I think there's a huge audience for that out there, but it's not an audience that programmers at the various networks even think about. Right. No, it, it's not. And it's it's something that, uh, as I've encountered, I mean, I think it's, it's one of the great connectors uh, or uniters in, in a way that politics obviously is not, you know, the, especially in the Trump era, um, that that 
you know, community and, and faith and, and the communities built around faith and houses of worship, uh, can connect people in, can make people feel more connected, uh, than a lot of the, the way the media, um, you know, puts the country out to be. Yeah. I, I look, I think that the media, because so much of the media is left of center socially, uh, secular in their worldview. They don't realize how many millions of Americans out there actually would share my worldview and process the world as I do. And they miss that segment. There, there seems like there is a, there's a media market out there for it. If someone recognized it and it's not being served by a CNN, a Fox, a Newsmax, an OAN and MSNBC. Um, but it, uh, frankly, I think it, at this point it's ripe for the pickings. I mean, I, I have found, for example, after 2016, so many people assumed that I was wiping out my radio career by being never Trump, particularly in conservative media landscapes. Right. I actually don't know that I know anyone who was as vocally anti-Trump as I was in 2016 in talk radio who kept their job other than me. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that I talked way more than politics. I mean, I talked cooking on radio. Yeah. But also, I spent a lot of time talking about faith and, and spiritual values and culture in ways that connect with my audience that gave us license to disagree with each other while them also knowing where my heart was. So they could we could agree to disagree as, as friends beyond just uh, they were consuming the media I was giving them. We're going to end with what Erickson would do if he had $10 million to start a media venture and the fourth watch lightning round, six questions in 60 seconds. But first, a look at why the public doesn't trust the media or, quote, experts. The Trump era habit in the media to instinctively contradict every proclamation being by the president has led to some real world consequences during COVID, like the media pivot on in-person school learning. But no proclamation has been as obviously incorrect as the casual dismissal of President Trump's push that we were working towards having a vaccine ready to go this year. This kind of media pushback was all over, but NBC seemed to take the lead on reigning on the parade. A good example was this tweet from MSNBC's chief, very online tweeter, Kyle Griffin, who tweeted that NBC fact check coronavirus vaccine could come this year, Trump says. Experts say he needs a, quote, miracle to be right. The fact check itself was like a work of journalistic art, including the subheadline, there's a lot that could go wrong, one expert said. Thank you to that expert. In fact, the entire piece quotes expert after expert, making it clear it would be essentially impossible to deliver on this escalated timeline. Similarly, this showed up on TV. There was a great segment from Brian Williams's MSNBC show from May, where the host, in his very bry way, made clear the absurdity of Trump's prediction. The promise was held out that we'll have a vaccine by the end of this year. Is that possible in your view? He asked his guest, Dr. Erwin Redliner. Redliner called it preposterous, saying Trump was misleading the public. It is impossible to get that done by the end of the year, he said. But doctor after doctor, expert after expert, media pundit after media pundit said it wasn't possible. And yet now Americans are being vaccinated. As many as 20 or 30 million will be vaccinated by the end of the year. Redliner tweeted this weekend, I said it and I was wrong. But it was so hard then to separate Trump's truth from his many lies. With doctors like these, why does Jill Biden even want to be associated with them? Another failure of the, quote, experts and the media who elevated them. Another reason for the public to be distrustful of both groups. Now back to Eric Erickson. I know you're very entrepreneurial. You're always really thinking about the media landscape. Uh, you've started uh, various ventures as well um, and, and thinking about the way that, the, you know, the, the direction the media is going. So here's a question. I asked this to Wesley Lowry uh, also. Uh, so here's if I gave you $10 million today to start a media venture, where would you start? Where do you think there's there's an opening? And if you had the resources to do something that you think is uh, would make an impact? 
Oh, I, I, I can tell you very specifically, if I had $10 million, I would buy myself a studio for my radio show. I would do exactly what I'm doing right now, where I have my own morning radio show separate from my WSB Drive Time Atlanta show in the evening. I do two radio shows. Nine to noon is mine. I own it 100%. Four to six, I'm an employee of WSB Radio and do Atlanta Evening News. I would take my nine to noon show. I would build a studio somewhere. I would um, build it out as a uh, live broadcast TV show that someone could take that TV feed like some radio shows have done, broadcast it in all or in part on a, on a TV station as a TV show, boost the production value to be able to put that together. Uh, know explicitly that I'm targeting not just conservatives, uh, but people who have a, a Christian worldview. I would then turn that around and also add a side wing to that for, for example, book publishing, devotionals, uh, newsletters, where you're understanding the media landscape beyond just talk radio or TV for better access to me, uh, to be able to understand the world a little more as the only person out there who's really relating to it in your worldview, uh, and then expand it from there. Um, not necessarily having my own TV station, but providing a package that people can consume wherever they want, however they want, live or on demand, by a video or radio or podcast uh, with related publishing to go with it. I've actually put a lot of thought into this because I definitely think there's a market for it out there uh, for people to be able to connect to. And, and frankly, I would be doing it, but don't have that level of capital right now to be able to do it. Right. Oh, we need to make that happen. And we need a cooking show also. That is definitely... Yeah, well, listen, I, I would do the, the side things like that. I want a cooking show. I actually got uh, approached by one of the major streaming services about doing a cooking show uh, right before the pandemic. And it didn't work out at the time uh, for a number of reasons. And, and then the pandemic happened. So it definitely wouldn't have worked out. But I, I just, here, here's the, the side product I would do if I had that $10 million is I would do a cooking show where I invite on someone who I explicitly publicly disagree with politically. And we wouldn't talk politics. We would find something to connect over as we cooked. Love it. Love it. We got to make that happen. Uh, all right, Eric, uh, before we let you go, the uh, fourth watch lightning round, six questions in 60 seconds. Where were you born? Jackson, Louisiana. You're the host of the Eric Erickson show airing throughout Georgia. What's one benefit and one cost of that role? Uh, one benefit is I'm the only statewide program, so I have a voice in every corner of the state. Uh, the cost is, uh, because it's just in Georgia, advertising models are limited, and there are a lot of people who have decided, oh, well, he just wants to be the regional guy. Actually, I want to be a nationwide syndicated radio show host. Who's someone who's been a mentor for you? Rush Limbaugh. Who's one person you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people? Uh, Paul Begala, uh, absolutely love that guy. We disagree on everything politically. Uh, Donna Brazil, a lot of these people I was on, on CNN with Donna Brazil, Paul Begala, uh, personally love them, even if we disagree politically. Who's one person in the media you think's really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention? Oh, uh, you know what? John Bachman at Newsmax, actually, the, the guy is fantastic trying to toe the line on on the real news stories of the day while also building a conservative audience competing against Fox. I would keep my eye on that guy. All right. Last thing. One year from today, what's one prediction you have for the media? That they will not be able to have divorced themselves from Donald Trump uh, and will still try to weave him into every news story possible. Eric, thanks so much for doing this. Absolutely. Thanks to Eric Erickson. Go find him on Twitter at EW Erickson. Great follow there. Remember, Fourth Watch is not just a podcast. It's also a newsletter. It started uh, last year. 
which comes out three times a week. It's free. Subscribe at fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in the show, as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. The song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music. And you can download this podcast as well. Like, rate, review, subscribe, and find it wherever you get your podcasts. This was produced at Full Circle Studios in Addison, Texas. We're back in 2021. Stay safe. Have a happy new year. And we'll talk to you then.